Good morning again. We turn now to the living and abiding Word of God. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, would you turn to Matthew chapter 12? Matthew chapter 12, we're going to be in verses 22 to 32 today. Today we come to another conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. We saw their conflict last week about the Sabbath and God's law in general and their accusation that Jesus was violating and disregarding God's law. That conflict ended with the Pharisees being so angry that they went away and conspired to destroy Jesus. But the conflict we're going to see today is one that has an especially sober ending for us. Jesus ends by talking about the one sin someone can commit and not be forgiven of. And that sin is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This verse, or these verses, have caused a lot of fear and doubt for a lot of Christians. And so as we take a close look at it, we need to do what we do in every passage of Scripture, especially the misunderstood ones. We only understand it rightly when we understand it in the context in which it is given and in which it is said. Verses 31 and 32 are Jesus' warning after he sees the settled opposition of the Pharisees to him and his kingdom. He's answering a specific objection about his own power and where it comes from and what that says about who he is and what he has come to do. Only when we see that teaching clearly can we truly understand what Jesus is warning us against. So we're going to look carefully at this whole passage to hear the warning Jesus gives the Pharisees, but also the amazing good news Jesus gives to sinners, big sinners like you and me, who trust in Him and receive His forgiveness. But before we come to His Word, let's go to God in prayer and ask for His help to hear it and receive it. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read Your Holy Word, I ask that You would give us Your Spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know and love Your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may hear your word and come to Jesus. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, that is Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This is the word of the Lord. As we look at this passage, we're going to work our way through it and see the things that lead up to Jesus' warning at the end. So first we're going to see the conflict. Then we're going to see the charge that the Pharisees bring against Jesus. Then we'll see Jesus' response to that charge and his statement about what his mission is in this world. And then finally, we'll look at Jesus' warning in verses 30 to 32. This section begins with another instance of Jesus healing someone. This time there's a man who is demon-oppressed and he was unable to see and unable to speak, most likely because of the demon. Matthew says that this man was brought to Jesus and Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Now this immediately raises questions for us. As he's already done in this gospel, Matthew has connected the physical and the spiritual. He connects the fact that this man is oppressed by a demon or an evil spirit with the fact that he is blind and mute. Then Jesus heals the man of his physical ailments, and everyone there, including Jesus, recognizes that the casting out of the demon has led to this man's healing. We have to see that this whole interaction is built on something that is largely rejected in our time and our culture. There is an evil spiritual power in this world that has real harmful effects on people. And there is a good spiritual power in this world that has life-giving effects on people. But those aren't just vague spiritual forces. No, they are specific. The evil spiritual power comes from what used to be God's angels, but are now fallen angels, what we call demons or evil spirits. And the good spiritual power is rooted in the one who made heaven and earth, the maker of all things visible and invisible, the one true God who has eternally existed as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the backdrop for this passage. If you don't accept those things, if you are more a child of the Enlightenment or of our secular age than a child of Scripture, then you will see this passage as a bunch of gobbledygook. Satan and Beelzebul and the Holy Spirit, those are all just myths that we should have moved on from by now. And that's one way that our modern world reads a passage like this. It discounts the spiritual and turns everything good and bad into psychology and biology. But what I want you to see is that if you do that, if you disregard all this talk of demons and spirits, You may think that you're gaining freedom, but you have to see that you are also undercutting the good news of this passage. Jesus will speak about forgiveness of every sin 
and every blasphemy. This is freedom from our guilt. But there is no real freedom from guilt if there is no God to forgive our sins. He will tell us that the kingdom of God has come upon us. And so the present age of evil and suffering and death is in the process of being destroyed and giving way to an age of joy and life. But none of that is true if Satan isn't the ruler of this world and if Jesus hasn't come to free us from his power. If you empty the world of the spiritual realm, then you empty the possibility of hope and forgiveness and eternal life and rest for our souls. This world becomes a cold, dark place that no one is directing or watching over. And so no one can help us to overcome it. But that is not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that there is a spiritual battle going on. It teaches that we war not just against flesh and blood. All of our problems can't just be boiled down to brain chemistry and our past experiences. No, we sin against a holy, infinite, and invisible God. And we are affected by evil that wants to draw us away from that God. As we will see, this is the battle that Jesus came to fight. So, in the story, Jesus heals this man. He casts out the demon, and this man begins to see and to speak again. And the people watching are amazed. And they begin asking the question of Jesus' identity. Who is this man? Can this be the son of David? Remember, God promised David that he would set his son on an eternal throne. This was the Messiah, the one who wouldn't just come and gain political power, but who would give sight to the blind, cause the lame to walk, and preach good news to the poor. As Jesus has been saying, he wouldn't just set up some new earthly kingdom, but he would bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. The people know these promises, and so they see this power and they wonder, is this him? Is this the one we have been waiting for? Now enter the Pharisees. These men don't like Jesus. They are suspect of him. They don't like that he eats with sinners and tax collectors. They can't believe he would have the audacity to forgive sins. They don't think he upholds the law in the way he should. And so they have attempted to trap him. And when trapping him hasn't worked, they've determined that they are going to destroy him. Here, they are quick to squash the wondering of the people. Verse 24 says, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. The name Beelzebul might not be familiar to you. The King James uses the word Beelzebub. Either way, Jesus makes it clear in verse 26 that this is another name for Satan. The Pharisees are on a smear campaign. They haven't been able to discredit Jesus' works or his interpretation of the law, so now they are accusing him of an evil source for all that he does. We can see that you do amazing things, but you do them by an evil power, the power of Satan. Jesus has a response for them. 
And like so many of Jesus' responses, it isn't as direct as we might expect or want it to be. Sometimes that's frustrating to us. But I want you to see the opening phrase of verse 25 as a key to the way that Jesus responds. Verse 25 begins, Knowing their thoughts, he said to them. Jesus answered them in this way because he knew their thoughts. He didn't need to know their thoughts to answer their accusation. Look, they clearly said it out loud that Jesus is doing these things by the power of Satan. But he is responding in this way because he doesn't just hear what they say. He knows why they are saying it. He knows that they know who he is and that they have decided to reject him anyway. In his response, Jesus makes three if-then statements to get the Pharisees to assess the implications of the accusation they've just made. Notice he doesn't come at them with a hammer. He doesn't just yell, that's not true. He invites them and the people listening to think. Think about whether the claim they just made makes sense, whether it is true to reality. Christianity is a thinking religion and worldview. Jesus doesn't just tell you to turn off your brain and believe. He tells you to turn your brain on, think, and consider, and weigh the evidence. Christian faith and trust in God don't ignore evidence. They weigh all the evidence carefully. So let's look at these three if-then statements that Jesus responds to them with. The first one begins in, excuse me, the first one begins in verse 25 with a common sense general statement. Jesus says, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Then following that, he says, And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? He says that if Satan was going around casting out demons, then his kingdom would be a mess. It would be laid waste and completely ineffective. A kingdom battling against itself cannot pose a real threat to those around it. But Jesus' implication is that this is not true to reality. Look around, he says. Does it look like Satan's kingdom is floundering and failing? No. He's doing just fine. He has people trapped in sin and evil and suffering. As Jesus says this, Satan's kingdom has not yet fallen. It is alive and well. And so the Pharisees must be wrong about the source of Jesus' power. The second if-then statement calls the Pharisees to assess the consistency of their claim. Jesus says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. Here Jesus simply shows the Pharisees what their statement must mean. It was known that there were others who were casting out demons in the Jewish community. This was generally seen as a good thing. Jesus is showing the Pharisees that if they condemn him for casting out demons, they'll have to condemn everyone else who does it. This puts them in the awkward situation of being opposed to something 
that everyone else knows is good. Since options one and two have proven to be empty, Jesus gives a final option that shows the Pharisees what actually is going on. The final if-then statement says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's shown two reasons why the evidence doesn't suggest that his healings come from evil power. So the third option is the most reasonable. The spiritual world is divided between good and evil, light and dark, godly and ungodly. So if Jesus' power doesn't come from Satan, it must come from God, the source of all things good and true. This is exactly what Matthew just said a few verses ago when he quoted from Isaiah 42. And also earlier in the gospel at Jesus' baptism, God the Father has put the Holy Spirit upon Jesus to empower Him for His ministry in this world. And since this is true, Jesus tells the Pharisees the consequence. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus isn't some sideshow magician. He isn't a trickster who is trying to gain a following. He isn't an evil sorcerer using the power of Satan. He is God the Son, empowered by God the Holy Spirit. He is the true King who has come to establish His heavenly kingdom on earth. He is the Son of David, the Messiah, the Christ, the King whom God sent to rule on His throne forever. This has been the message of Jesus from the very beginning. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the next thing Jesus says about this kingdom gives us further insight into His mission in the world. Remember, He has come to save His people from their sins. He didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. He has come to give rest to those who labor and are heavy laden. All of this is about Jesus' mission in the world. But in this context, in the context of talking about the kingdom of Satan, Jesus gives us a cosmic view of His mission. Look at what He says in verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Who is the strong man in Jesus' statement? The obvious answer is Satan, the prince of demons. Jesus just told us that if it was Satan casting out demons, then his kingdom would be divided. But it's not Satan casting them out. It's Jesus, the Son of God, by the Holy Spirit of God. So the true picture of what is going on is not one divided kingdom, but two warring kingdoms. There is a sense in which Satan has a kingdom in this world. Paul calls Satan the God of this world. In John 12, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. Satan has power here. And so the strong man's house that Jesus is entering is this world. What does he mean that he wants to plunder Satan's goods? What is Jesus plundering? What is he taking away from Satan? It's you. He's taking you from the power of the devil. 
The Bible teaches everywhere that when you sin, you become a slave to sin. And we all have sinned. We've turned from God. And so the world that Jesus comes into is a world of people trapped in darkness. A world of people held under the power of sin and Satan. This is what we saw at the beginning of this passage. There's a real spiritual evil in this world. Do you see what Jesus has come to do? He has come as the rescuer from heaven to find Satan, bind him up, and go about freeing those in darkness and slavery. We have such a domesticated picture of our own sin, and so we have such a domesticated picture of what Jesus is doing. Jesus is a warrior who has come to crush our enemy and win us back. The demons tremble and cry out in fear at his coming. Paul says in Colossians 2, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. Jesus has come to triumph over every evil and wicked thing in this world and to rescue you and me from their power. There is no evil that is a match for Jesus. Some of you know all too well the evil influence in your life. Suffering, fear, temptation to sin. We would all do well to recognize that influence in our own fight with sin. Brothers and sisters, take heart. Jesus is the light of the world, and though the darkness tries, it is no match for the light. But Jesus doesn't end with this statement about his mission. Instead, he goes on and ends with a warning to the Pharisees. He's just shown that his mission is a battle of two kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of Satan. His warning to the Pharisees is that there are only two sides in that battle. Let's read verses 30 to 32 again. He says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. In verse 30, Jesus warns the Pharisees that there is no middle ground. They are the elites of the Jewish religion. They know their Bibles well. They seek to obey God's law. They are searching for the Messiah. But they are clearly intent on rejecting Jesus as that Messiah. When Jesus tells them, what Jesus tells them is that there are only two sides. If you are not with Jesus, then you are against him. And if you are against the Son of God who has come to bring his kingdom, then you have sided with the kingdom of the devil. He says something similar about what they are doing to other people. Remember, he portrayed the world as a field white for harvest. And he longed to send out laborers to gather in the harvest. That's what he's doing when he's sending his apostles into the world. But he warns the Pharisees, that anyone who isn't gathering disciples into the fold is by rule scattering them and leading them astray. 
Notice that they are not doing this in ignorance. They know who Jesus is, and they still oppose him. That opposition is joining the side of Satan. In the following two verses, Jesus continues to warn the Pharisees and tells them about the one sin that will not be forgiven, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And before we wade into those waters, we need to acknowledge that this is a haunting statement by Jesus. Christianity's core message is the forgiveness of our sins. And what Jesus teaches here is that there is one exception to that forgiveness. It's not uncommon for people, even longtime Christians, to latch on to this one exception and become riddled with doubt and fear, wondering if they have committed this sin. Some of you in this room may have known that doubt and that fear. And so we need to tread carefully, but we do need to tread. We need to be sure that we understand what Jesus is teaching in order to hear his warning and also in order to maintain the assurance of salvation that the Bible offers to true Christians. So what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Remember, blasphemy is speaking a word against or speaking evil of God. But Paul is forgiven of blasphemy in 1 Timothy 1.13. And Jesus even says here that every blasphemy will be forgiven except this one. So what is it? We'll get closer to the answer by using the rest of the Bible to eliminate options for what this is. First, it is not any sin against the Holy Spirit. Paul in Ephesians 4 tells us that we as Christians can grieve the Holy Spirit with our sin. In fact, the Bible teaches that all sin is against God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so ultimately, all of our sin is against the Holy Spirit. So Jesus isn't talking about general sin against the Holy Spirit. He means something unique, something particular. Some Christians believe that sin against the Holy Spirit or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the sin of apostasy, turning away from Jesus after professing to trust in Him. The argument goes that when someone has been filled with the Holy Spirit and rejects Him, there is no turning back for them. But that argument or that way of looking at it misses the fact that no one filled with the Holy Spirit can ever truly turn away from Jesus. There are certainly proclaimers of Jesus' name who turn away from him. But Jesus teaches that if you truly have the spiritual reality of salvation, you can never lose it. Jesus says in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Brothers and sisters, if you are in the hands of Jesus, if you have trusted in Him for salvation and been united to Him, you cannot be ununited to Him. So apostasy is not the unforgivable sin. Another option that has been suggested is that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is simply unbelief in Jesus. 
This seems promising at first. The idea is that as long as you persist in this sin, you cut yourself off from forgiveness. But then once you repent, you are forgiven. But the problem with that is that Jesus in this passage isn't talking just about persisting in that sin. He's talking about even committing it. And unbelief is forgiven in Scripture. Anyone who holds Jesus at arm's length for a time and then eventually bows the knee to him is forgiven of their unbelief. No, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is something even more specific than that. What I think is the most important thing to see in this text is the way that the Pharisees have engaged with Jesus to this point. They have questioned and challenged him again and again. They have seen his miracles and heard his teaching with authority. They have seen the crowds astounded at that authority. Again and again, Jesus has given them evidence that he is the Messiah, the chosen one of God. Their final act last week was not to say, I'm just not convinced yet. No, Matthew says that they went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And the beginning of Jesus' response today says, knowing their thoughts, he said to them. This has led to a number of commentators and theologians throughout the history of the church to say that this sin is a sober, measured rejection of Jesus against all the evidence, which the blasphemer has both heard and felt. Let me say that again. This is a sober, measured rejection of Jesus against all the evidence, which the blasphemer has both heard and felt. The key is that the Pharisees are convinced of who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings conviction of sin and sheds light on the truth about Jesus. And so their rejection of him isn't ignorance. It's not that they're confused. They know the scriptures. They have seen the evidence. They know exactly who Jesus is. And instead of bowing their knee to the Savior, they have called him Satan. They have seen his mercy and determined that it is evil. John Calvin says that they have turned the only medicine of salvation, God's grace, into a deadly venom. This isn't a slip of the tongue. It's not a season of doubt. It's not an impulsive action or an unwanted thought. This is a persistent smothering of the Holy Spirit speaking to your conscience. It is knowing who Jesus is and hating him for it. It is seeing the grace of the gospel and calling it the work of the devil. There is so much more that could be said about this sin. If you have more questions, please come and talk to me. I mentioned the way that people struggle over this sin. And we all know that Satan loves to work in the dark. So please come into the light and talk about this sin and the questions surrounding it. Before we move on to the other half of Jesus' statement in these verses, I want to say one more word. And I want to read a quote to you from the Puritan pastor, Matthew Henry. This is what he says about how Christians should think about this sin. He says, We have reason to think that none are guilty of this sin who believe that Christ is the Son of God and sincerely desire to have part 
in His merit and mercy. And those who fear they have committed this sin give a good sign that they have not. Brothers and sisters, you should not hear about this sin and decide that you must be excluded from the grace of Jesus. No, what the Bible commands is that you flee to Jesus for forgiveness. If you come to Him, He will never turn you away. The last thing I want us to look at this morning is the other half of Jesus' statement in verses 31 and 32. He's certainly issuing a warning, but His warning comes paired with an incredible statement about the extent of His forgiveness and His power in salvation. Let's read those verses together again. He says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Do not miss the incredible sweeping statement Jesus makes about His forgiveness. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people. Every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven, people. Jesus will go on to speak of the one exception that we just looked at. But how many of us walk around thinking that there are dozens of exceptions to Jesus' forgiveness? No, you don't understand. Jesus could never forgive me of that sin. How many of us have a list of sins in our past or even in our present that we think Jesus couldn't possibly forgive us for? We make His forgiveness too small. We make His salvation too short. Jesus came to save sinners. If you have sinned, then you qualify for salvation. Do not exclude yourself when Jesus has included you. Blasphemy. Speaking evil of God is not an unforgivable sin. Paul confesses that before he knew Jesus, he was a persecutor and a blasphemer. Denying Jesus in a moment of cowardice is not an unforgivable sin. Peter denied Jesus three times on the night he was betrayed and was welcomed back by him. Sex before marriage is not an unforgivable sin. Murder, abortion, Jesus will forgive you of those if you come to him. Adultery, unbiblical divorce, homosexual sin, these are not unforgivable sins. Drug use, alcohol abuse, abusing your own body, stealing, lying, slandering someone's name, being a bad parent, being a bad spouse, none of these things are beyond the forgiveness of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, every one of those sins and dozens that I have not mentioned will be forgiven by Jesus if you come to Him. His promise is that He will wash you clean, whiter than snow. His arm is not too short. His heart is not unwilling. He came into the world to save sinners. He shed His blood to pay not just for your small sins, but every one of your sins. Do not hold back from Him in fear that your sin is too great. This passage that we've looked at today shows how angry the grace of Jesus can make people. 
It shows how stark the decision is to reject Jesus. It puts you on the side of Satan. But this passage also shows the incredible love and mercy of Jesus. He is the divine warrior who has come to do battle with Satan and rescue sinners held under his power. He has come to plunder and gather us into his kingdom as the redeemed sons and daughters of the Father. And he is the Savior who has come to forgive every one of your sins. Do not hold back from him. Look on the love and mercy and grace of the Son of God and come to him for salvation. Would you all pray with me? Father, we are so weak and needy. We are not just weak and needy in our sin, but we are weak and needy in our ability to see Jesus. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in us, that he would open our eyes, not just to see Jesus and hold him at arm's length, not just to convict us of our sin, but to compel us to come to Jesus for the hope and life and forgiveness that are found in him. We need you every hour to do that. And so we pray that you would do that in us now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.